The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley, uh, through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd, does not own the sheep. Sees, who does not own the sheep uh, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for, my, for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. I'm going to share a third scripture reading with you this morning, or this afternoon. I'm blocked into my pattern, aren't I? The uh, first two readings are assigned for today in the Revised Common Lectionary. This third one is two. Listen for the word. From John 3, 1 John 3, 16 through 24. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God, and we receive from him whatever we ask, because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit that he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord of might and of mercy, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and would be acceptable to you. For you remain our rock, and you remain our redeemer. Amen. When I was in college, I had several friends who were not believers. They knew I was a believer, and for the most part, we just respected each other's difference of opinion on the subject of religion, in particular Christian faith, and got along just fine. But sometimes things would bubble up. 
One such occasion happened while I was standing next to one of these friends on campus. We were in the quad, and this guy came walking by wearing an awful T-shirt, very graphic depiction of the crucifixion on it, bloody, gory, Jesus' eyes rolling back, Jesus' mouth opened in anguish. This was just an awful, awful depiction. When he got closer, we could both see that underneath this image of the crucifixion were the words, his pain, your gain. My friend, the non-believer, something snapped. He looked at that, looked at the words, and he blurted out for anyone to hear, what is wrong with you Christians, and what's up with all this cross stuff? Now, this non-believing friend attitude towards Christian faith if I'm being honest, wasn't as respectful as some of my other friends. He reminded me a little bit of the dad in Peter Schaeffer's play, Equus. If you don't know what that is, the premise of the play is this. A young man commits a crime, and it's just heinous, awful. The court orders a psychiatric evaluation. His parents are involved. The mom, as it turns out, is religious, fundamentalist. His dad is an atheist, angry, Abrasive. So the dad has his time with the psychiatrist. He says, I'm an atheist and I don't mind admitting it. If you want my opinion, it's the Bible that's responsible for this. I hear my wife whispering that Bible to him hour after hour up there in his room. Bloody religion. It's our only real problem in this house. I don't mind admitting it. The psychiatrist asks the dad why he believes the scriptures are to blame for his son's extreme and terrible behavior. He responds, Well, look at it yourself. A boy spends night after night having this stuff read into him, an innocent man tortured to death, thorns driven into his head, nails into his hands, a spear jammed through his ribs. It can mark anyone for life. My non-believing friend clearly thought our focus on the cross could mark anyone for life, but not in a good way. He only had to point to this T-shirt guy walking across campus in his repulsive fashion sense for an example. But there he was, what's the deal with you Christians, asking me this question, his friend. And I didn't have a good response, frankly. What do you say to a person like that in a moment like that? Well, I'm Presbyterian can go to confessions and statements from my tradition, lift up something from the Scots Confession, maybe in 1560. Our Lord Jesus offered himself a voluntary sacrifice, that he was wounded and plagued for our transgressions, that we should be absolved. Maybe I could just have gone the scripture route, quoted scripture. Stand in the line of the Apostle Paul who wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I have decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But would that have made a dent, made a mark on Him? I don't think so. To be perfectly honest, my non-believing friends aren't wrong. Our faith is a bit strange. We believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe in life after death. We believe in forgiveness, for goodness sake. 
We believe in the power of God's saving, transforming love. We believe there is holiness even to ordinary life. And we do spend a lot of time looking at a death on a cross. For goodness sake, here we are still in the season of Easter, if you want to pay attention to church calendars. It's supposed to be a time of joy and celebration still in the church. Even our readings today are meant to celebrate Jesus as the shepherd, the good shepherd. But there are also references to the cross in them. Did you pick them up? Maybe we should just own what it is that we do talk about a lot. We do believe that the story of a good man unjustly crucified can mark a person for life. As near as I can tell, the author of the Gospel of John was one such person. Only he wasn't marked negatively like this father in Schaefer's play or my college friend would have suspected. John was marked for the better. Now, I'm thinking you probably know this, but when John tells the story of Jesus, he does so differently than the other Gospels. Examples are plentiful. I'll give you a few. John's Gospel opens with a unique and highly theological prologue. John's Gospel doesn't actually describe the baptism of Jesus. John's Gospel is the only one that talks about Jesus being at a wedding in Cana. John's Gospel never refers to Jesus' miracles as miracles. They're always called signs instead. John tells the story differently. Here's another difference. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the impression given is that at the cross, somebody takes Jesus' life from him. It's the Romans who do this. It's the Jewish religious leaders who do this. It's the crowd who rejects him who's to blame. It's his own followers who, out of fear and a desire to save their own skin, that abandon him. They're the ones that seal his fate. But that's not how John sees it. Instead, in John 10, as you heard tonight, he recalls how Jesus says multiple times, I lay down my life. Just to make sure that everybody understands the point, John remembers Jesus saying these words, No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He's not trapped by jealous priests. He's not coerced by circumstances and political realities. He isn't forced by worldly or demonic powers to go to the cross. He goes because he decides to go. To even further emphasize this, Jesus in John's gospel will say, I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to take it up again. Now, the word for power typically in the New Testament Greek is dunamos, or dunamis. It means the the power that resides within some being or some person. It even lends itself to explosive power, if you will. So dunamis becomes dynamite for us. See the connection? Makes you think a little bit differently about the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promises will come upon us. It's explosive power. But that's not the word that's used here when Jesus says, I have power to lay down my life and power to take it up again. The word here in the Greek is exousia. It carries within it the meaning of a right, a liberty, a freedom. That means it's accurate, entirely accurate, to hear Jesus say his words like this, I have freedom to lay down my life. 
and I have freedom to take it up again. Great theologian Karl Barth has written, God's being consists in the fact that he is the one who loves in freedom. Such a being is God because he lives as such. He lives in freedom. We might also add, per our reading today from John's Gospel, he is such because he freely dies as such. Going to the cross is an act of freedom for Jesus because it's an act of love for him. He's the good shepherd who knows the sheep. He is the good shepherd who cares for the sheep. He is the good shepherd who will do anything for the sheep. He is the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep. And we are the sheep. For us Christians, whether they live back in John's time or in our own, that sacrifice has marked us. I would like to think that even my non-believing friend could have understood that. I would like to think that any person could understand how it can mark a person's life when they know that another has unselfishly made a great sacrifice voluntarily, paid a high price for their well-being or security or life willingly. Service men and women come to mind. A few weeks ago, I read a very brief account of what happened on March 2nd, 1967. 220 Marines of L Company, 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines, set out on a mission in Vietnam. They encountered the enemy at 9 a.m., and by 5 o'clock, only 15 of those Marines remained who were not dead or wounded. How does that not make an impact on you? It didn't matter to me that when I read it, it was 54 years ago. I could see faces. How many times have similar stories been enacted over the years, and how many different conflicts? How many times have young people, some perhaps reluctantly, perhaps many willingly, laid down their lives and paid the ultimate price out of a sense of duty to a nation or to family or to friends or to neighbors or humanity? No matter your politics or your philosophies about the moment, when you think about someone willing to make such a sacrifice, it has to have a lasting impact on you. On January 13, 1982, a jetliner taking off from what was at the time the National Airport in Washington, D.C., crashed into the icy waters of the Potomac River. Some of you, like me, may be old enough to remember this. It was a horrific scene. In the aftermath, stories of rescue attempts came forward, including those about a a man named Arland Williams. Williams was 47 years old and had been on the plane and was one of just six survivors found floating in the water when the rescuers came on the scene. Lifelines were thrown specifically to him, at least twice. And both times he handed his lifeline over to someone else. They were pulled to safety. Rescuers, again, threw him a line. He handed it away. Rescuers rescued another person. They threw it to him again, except this time he was gone. He drowned. You know, there are stories that say Arlen Williams didn't even know how to swim. 
I can only imagine how profoundly it would impact me and transform me if I had been one of the people that were saved in his place. One of those people that a stranger had handed literally a lifeline over to. How could it not? Of course, not all willing, voluntary sacrifices involve giving up a life. That doesn't mean they can't be life-changing. Parents often make great sacrifices for their children, working long hours, sometimes multiple jobs, putting their own needs aside to give their child every chance of success. Sometimes the shoe's on the other foot. Sometimes children make sacrifices for their parents. Last week, I prayed with another pastor for two sisters in Nashville. One of them needed a kidney transplant. The other was a match. That very day, they were both having surgery. One giving, one receiving. I bet you know stories like this. Stories where some person needed blood or bone marrow, and the call went out, but it wasn't just the family that responded. It was strangers, perhaps in the dozens, perhaps in the hundreds, perhaps in the thousands, strangers standing forward, voluntarily giving what they had, even giving their own life essence. Again, can you imagine what it would do to you if you were in that sort of need and that kind of willing, generous, selfless outpouring came forward? How could it not mark you for life? It is the same sort of freedom, the same sort of giving, the same sort of love that is perfectly modeled in Jesus as the good shepherd who lays down his life. That sacrifice marked John. It marked his community of faith. It marked the lives of many early Christians, so much so that it prompted them to tell the stories of Jesus over and over and over and over again. It prompted them to remember his acts of costly love, his acts of expansive grace, and it had life-changing effects on them and how they lived among others. They cared for one another. And they cared for those around them. So much so, a subsequent author, a First John, seems to be among those that were changed by the witness. He writes, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? So yeah, we Christians do look at the cross a lot. We Christians do consider a man's death frequently. But how can you blame us? In that cross, we see God's freedom. We see God's choosing us, choosing to love us. And because we also know that Jesus had power to take up his life again, we see something else. We see hope. We see the promise of a new day. We see resurrection. Which means we also see in that cross an example of how we might use our days and use our resources and use our energies and use our freedom to make a choice day by day, moment by moment, to love and to live in word, sure, in speech, 
Yes, but in action and in truth, in a Christ-like way. Christ's freedom to love us sets us free to love too. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.
last song with us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear. Among the scoffers, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Death and resurrection. Wow. 
His wounds have paid my rent. 